puppet masters almost surely have a plan There's clearly maybe something there beyond the realm of man Until we've thoroughly tested every last close-chested view Find the more you think you know, the less you really do Where would we be without THC? We know the lying to us just don't know to what degree Where would we be without THC? The highest chat show Greg Carl Wood and Company say we all good people of the internet from the sunshine state i'm greg carlwood and just outside the purview of the typical american mind lies an archetypal force weaving its way through many unexplained phenomena manifesting in many forms and taking on an almost endless number of embodiments causing mischief and chaos subverting taboos dissolving boundaries and mystifying man as if that's its prime directive Its many faces have been recognized by a number of groups from Native Americans and indigenous Australians to occultists and conjurers, yet it remains elusive and ambiguous to even those who have accepted its influence. It inspires hoaxers, motivates magicians, and encourages internet trolls, igniting the internal charge one gets from trickery, sleight of hand, and the astonishment of onlookers. One could consider it to be some ethereal artist from behind the cosmic curtain whose greatest works include what we would often refer to as paranormal, high strangeness, UFOs, and Fortean events. This force has broadly been known as the trickster, and few have been so bold as to try to pin down this slippery something, but today we are talking to one such man in George P. Hansen, author of the classic book The Trickster and the Paranormal. For the uninitiated, George was professionally employed in parapsychology laboratories for eight years, three at the Ryan Research Center in Durham, North Carolina, and five at Psychophysical Research Laboratories in Princeton, New Jersey. His experiments include remote viewing, card guessing, electronic random number generators, seance phenomena, and ghosts. He has been active in a number of psychic, UFO, and New Age organizations and even helped found a skeptics group just to keep balance in the force. His papers in scientific journals cover mathematical statistics, fraud and deception, the skeptics movement, conjures in parapsychology, and exposés of hoaxes. And he's also a proud card-carrying member of the International Brotherhood of Magicians a legend in paranormal research, and it's an honor to have him here, the anti-structure educator, high-strangeness explorer, and talented trickster biographer, George P. Hansen. Welcome to the higher side. Well, thank you. Yes, yes, I'm really looking forward to this. Your work has been cited by many previous guests, and I tried to outline the general shape of what we might call the trickster in that intro so that we wouldn't have to start from scratch. I know your general basic definition is that the trickster is an archetype or a collection of abstract characteristics. Talk to us about some of those characteristics, just so we get all the listeners on the same page. Well, one most obvious characteristic is deception. And we certainly see that in the UFO field and most paranormal fields, whether it's Bigfoot or other monsters in parapsychology and in spiritualism, there's been a long history of fakery. In virtually all paranormal fields, 
they're sort of tainted because of the deception and they're sort of marginalized and marginality is often a characteristic of the trickster. So one could go on and on and on. And as we discuss more, if I'm not being clear enough or not giving enough examples, just tell me. So I'll turn it back to you. (laughs) Fair enough. And I think it's pretty clear that the trickster isn't just one supreme entity, but it is almost like a personality profile, an archetype that can be embodied in many different ways. Is it fair to say that the trickster is almost like a form of energy or a force of some kind in the world, almost akin to gravity? I wouldn't call it a force. I wouldn't use that word. I would prefer to keep it a little bit more abstract. Something like a constellation or the trickster qualities or trickster characteristics. I think, at least in my mind, that gets to it a little bit better. Energy has physical meaning and it's sometimes related to entropy. And I think there's an aspect there, certainly. But I think the trickster is more broad and a little more ambiguous. Mm, Fair enough. Yes. Well, we're aware of the trickster's presence in mythology and folklore, which are themselves terms that blur the lines between real and not real for a lot of people. But if we called the trickster a force that governs paradox or an energy that governs paradox, the irrational and liminal spaces, I obviously see that trickster tone present in paranormal or high strangeness encounters. But I'm curious what you think triggers such an experience or the mechanisms behind these very bizarre encounters with all sorts of non-human creatures that people report. Well, I don't know if you can get behind that, but we see these aspects of the trickster all across the board. And there's disruption and deception. And the trickster is inherently a bit ambiguous and people have rather ambivalent feelings toward the trickster. So you're not going to be able to completely pin down the trickster just by its nature. It's not like something very solid. It's conceptual and it seems to have something of a life of its own. I don't believe it can be fully controlled or completely defined crisply and clearly. That's part of it. And if you're not willing to accept that, then you're going to have problems. If you think that you will be able to contain the trickster somehow, you're probably going to be in for some surprises and disappointments. Fair enough. Yes, there are some cultures in the world that have similar feelings around absolute raw truth that you can't really get at it directly, but it's best expressed through proverbs or reading between the lines. And you know it when you hear it, but the language, it's always around it rather than directly on it. I like that. Yeah. (laughs) I might quote you sometime. (laughs) Wow. Wow. All right. Well, I win. So. (laughs) Let's talk about one of the wildest manifestations of the trickster, which is the creatures that abductees and contactees experience. Often people assume they are the occupants or pilots of UFOs. But I've heard you say in previous interviews that some of your best friends are abductees and contactees. And 
when you hear enough of those sorts of stories, they really do boggle the mind as to what's behind all that. Sometimes people just see little men come out of a craft and inspect some foliage on the ground. Sometimes people have fluids extracted from them. Other times they might be taken out of their body, shown dead relatives, and then put back into bed. These situations clearly check some of those trickster boxes, but is there not anything more we could say about their source or their motivations in these weird encounters, having studied this so long? I don't think that question really makes sense. What you do is you're asking sort of why. Why are they doing this? Right. It's who, what, where, when, and how. (laughs) Uh, To get the motivation, I think that that doesn't seem to me to be a useful pursuit to try to understand that. Hmm. You look at characteristics across because you're trying to figure out what they're doing. And for my own thinking, that leads no place. I could understand why you say that for sure. I mean, it's hard to understand the logic of something so foreign and probably a waste of time to try. But it is my my biggest curiosity what they are doing. Well, let me ask you, what sort of things can we infer about the nature of reality if we accept the paranormal UFO high strangeness encounters people have as they are described? Well, you look at what are the characteristics of the people and the circumstances in their life and the circumstances of the encounters, and you will see certain commonalities. There are people undergoing transitions of some type are more likely to have some kind of a trickster phenomena. One of the books that was very influential in my early reading was Synchronicity, Science, Myth, and the Trickster by Combs and Holland. And they pointed out that when people are traveling, they're likely to have more synchronicities, especially traveling not in their car, but say on a vacation or a trip someplace that's a little out of the way. And that's been my experience as well. I've been over in Europe a few times, and I've been walking down the street and encountered someone who I knew. That rarely happens in my hometown. So there are, what are the circumstances in which these phenomena occur? So I look at it more that way. And also the time period. There are times when our society is undergoing more transition. In my experience and observation, I think there are times when that kind of transition or instability, we see an upsurge in interest in the paranormal and in UFOs. And you will see a lot of abductees also have psychic experiences. So those things go together. So when you look at these aspects that seem to occur together, that will tell us something. I'd have to think a little bit more to elaborate on that, but if you look at what else is happening around the people and their their lives and maybe the people in their community. Hmm. So right now we're seeing two things that I point out in some of my lectures. We're seeing a lot of UFO activity getting enormous amount of attention, but we're also seeing a lot of attention given to transgender. 
I don't think that's an accident. I think those are very closely related. Hmm. And both have very strong trickster qualities. Right, right. Gender studies and gender in general right now is obviously a somewhat thorny topic. People have very emotional, visceral reactions to such conversations. But the characteristics of the trickster are subverting binaries, sexual taboos, and this sort of stuff. So, yeah, maybe we should talk about it. What do you think is the connective tissue outside of those things I just mentioned between UFOs and, say, gender studies or this cultural fixation on gender that's going on out there? Okay, well, I've attended a number of large conferences on transgender issues. Philadelphia, for some years, had a very large conference held in the summertime. And I spent some time with those people, and I gave a lecture at one of the conferences. And I found them absolutely interesting people, some very, very impressive people there. And I also noted that if you were to have an occult conference, there were enough presenters at the Philadelphia conferences to people talking about paranormal and occult issues, you could have a full conference just on that topic from the transgender people. And in fact, if you look historically, transgender people have been very prominent as shamans and mediums and the like. And this goes to very, very many different cultures. So there is something very, you want to say spiritual or occult or paranormal. So you can go back thousands of years and this connection. We're also seeing our society undergoing some kind of transition. I don't know where it's going to wind up, but at this time, we are seeing enormous amount of attention given to the transgender issue. We're also seeing enormous amount of effort and information on the UFO topic. Both of these have very strong trickster aspects. And then the boundary blurring is very, very distinct there. So you see in the transgender community, there is an enormous, relatively to the straight community, there is enormous amount of interest in paranormal topics. And if you go to like the Philadelphia, which literally thousands of people attending, I saw quite a number of very interesting lectures related to the paranormal and religious topics. Hmm. Well, you are right about an occult LGBTQ crossover that is pretty strong that I could definitely say I've acknowledged and people also talk about Baphomet all the time as the big iconic symbol, which is a a transgendered being. So yeah, there's definitely something there for sure. And then you can talk about the Crowley stuff. You do mention that in the book that Crowley loved to violate sexual taboos, you know, sexual perversion and ritual magic, he would say, increases its power. And you even note that images of cannibalism and human sacrifice are central to Christianity, which is another crossover, the paranormal religious crossover that is being examined more these days. But yeah, it seems like sexual taboo is in all of those little avenues. Yes, yes. It's quite strong. And the religion paranormal connection is getting a little more attention. But historically, 
the paranormal is basically equivalent to the supernatural, and the supernatural has typically been the domain of religion. There are not a lot of people in parapsychology who really want to admit that. But if they ignore that, they're going to have a very limited understanding of these phenomena. Historically, saints, mystics, shamans, and other practitioners have been involved with religion of their societies and paranormal phenomena. And there's been attempts to downplay that and ignore that. But if you ignore that and just take a little part of the paranormal, you're going to have a very distorted understanding of the phenomena. Mm -hmm. I agree. I think it's actually a little ironic that categorization is such a big sticking point for some people in ufology. If you aren't coming to the same conclusion, then you're disruptive to the field. If you don't think that they're planet hoppers in some spaceship, then you are a problem as opposed to really being cross-referential with all sorts of things, mythology, religion, fairies even, all kinds of different areas of, of strange phenomenon. You should probably think of them more in a continuum as opposed to trying to just look at a narrow box and cut around everything else. I mean, that's what the mainstream does with paranormal in general. So it's funny to see a microcosm of that within ufology researchers. Oh, it's quite pervasive within the UFO research, but it's also pervasive within academe. Academe is highly bureaucratic. You have the humanities, you've got the social sciences, you've got the soft sciences and the hard sciences. And people in those areas rarely read or cite in rather dramatically different disciplines. In fact, they're generally penalized for doing so. They'd be looked down upon. They would not advance in the academic world. So the nature of bureaucracy and categorization is sort of inimical to understanding these phenomena. And the society itself, especially bureaucratic society, and that includes academe and government, they're not supposed to cross over and mess with topics outside of their, quote, expertise. So the nature of our society itself is inimical to these boundary blurring. And it confuses people and scares people. And if you decide to move into those areas, well, you're probably going to be penalized. You will be looked down upon, marginalized, and your work will not be taken seriously. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's just something about the way people think and organize that they just want to be part of a group, I guess, and want to push everything else out. But when we were talking about UFOs and what triggers them, you said you would start with looking at the individual experiencer's state of consciousness. Are they in a state of transition? Are they in a highly emotional emotionally volatile state? Did they experience trauma, change, travel, these sorts of things? I tend to agree it's not as obvious a connection to make for a lot of people as it would be looking at people's state of consciousness and the psi effects that you've studied. But 
side effects are interesting. I consider them a little bit of a different category because they don't involve other bizarre, seemingly autonomous beings. Maybe these beings do come from a certain state of consciousness or are triggered from them, but these puzzling abilities of the mind, like subtle influence of random number generators, remote viewing, card guessing, psychic reading, premonitions, skeptics would say these things can't be true because we already know X, Y, and Z about reality. But if we were to get past that and accept this psi phenomenon as proven, like the data shows, how has that eight years of your study and the time since caused you to reconfigure your construct of reality in accordance with folding in what that strange data seems to prove? Well, I looked at all this something more from like a sociological or more likely an anthropological approach rather than a psychological approach. So if you look at who the people are who are involved in, say, the remote viewing program, what do they do? What other activities are they interested in? And if you look at the government psychic spying program and the personnel involved with it and the government UFO programs, there is a huge overlap. In some of my lectures, I have a long list of the people who are involved in both topics. Even at the very beginning of the program, when Yuri Geller was brought over to be tested at SRI, well, Jacques Vallée was in a tower at SRI watching for UFOs while Geller was being tested. So the connection there is very, very clear. And you will see people in the remote viewing area have an interest in, say, near-death experiences and in People involved with near-death experiences often have an interest in the UFO topic. So these things go together. And if people are not aware of this, they're going to miss a whole lot. And the government remote viewing program has heavy involvement. If you look at, say, the Skinwalker Ranch, there's all sorts of wonderful overlaps there. Right, and it's interesting that once Bigelow ended up kind of Retiring that venture and selling the ranch, he started a consciousness studies organization. Yes, I'm not sure what he's doing now. He had NIDS National Discovery Science. And now you've got Brian Fugel, who is funding some very interesting research. And they're sending people out and they're looking at cattle mutilations and other entity types of experiences. Then they're also looking at geophysics and various electrical phenomena and the like. And that's the way I think the research needs to go. It's sort of a shotgun type of approach. Let's try something and see what happens. Right. There's a lot of people actually talking about the locational aspect, like what makes a hotspot a hotspot for such things? Is it qualities of the earth? Is it pressure building up in certain areas of the earth? Is it ley lines? There is the theory about a connection between earthquakes and UFO activity, which was strange the first time I heard it, but there does seem to be a correlation there. Yeah, well, John Durr and Michael Persinger had written on that 30 to 40 years ago. So that's not something new. People have been looking at that for some time. I haven't kept up on that research, but 
that deserves more attention. Ray Stanford was looking at things along that line, and Paul Devereaux over in the UK has been looking at somewhat related topics. And I'm sure there's a lot more that I'm not aware of. And again, these have been marginal people who have generally not been part of the big academic structure, but some of their research is very, very interesting. Yeah, definitely is. And when I think about the book you wrote and all the different areas you cover and the sections dedicated to hoaxing that goes on in both the realm of sci effects and mediumship and UFOs and the way you were like, no, let's hit this head on because it's also an element of the trickster. It's not something that you should just kind of ignore. It's a big part of the paranormal. Well, that also is a big part of what we might call alternative energy research, Tesla type stuff. There is the quest for zero point energy and energy science. And there is this paranoia of the government's involvement and the government suppressing certain technologies. And there's also fraud where people say they've made over unity devices and haven't. And I just find that all curious that electrical phenomenon and applications of electricity and energy science is another kind of box that we could also say we sometimes see the trickster playing in. Yes. And also you see some kind of connection with technology, certainly with magic. And there have been a number of scholars of magic who brought attention to, well, okay, there's some kind of relationship with technology. And I think that deserves a little more attention as well. The people who are at the cutting edge of technology often have an interest in paranormal topics. Mm -hmm. uh, Tesla would be one. Edison would be another. You look at the big funders, James McDonnell. McDonnell Douglas Aircraft was one of the big funders of paranormal research. Robert Bigelow, also an interest in space technology, one of the biggest funders in paranormal research. So there is something important there pushing us forward technologically. And that should be tricksters or innovators. They are disruptors. And some technology is very disruptive. So we might be seeing more of this as the disruption in our society continues. We're, we're looking at AI. I can't think of any paranormal aspects, but there probably are some there. Right. Well, Elon Musk has referred to it as summoning the demon, and Gordy Rose has referred to it as playing with the altar to an alien god. So like that language is very much in there. And then like the most popular technology company, Apple, is invoking the bitten Apple religious symbol. So there's that weird religious connection again. And a lot of... Oh, I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, and then a lot of other people have also noted that if you break open a phone or a computer and you look at the motherboard, a lot of its patterns and structure look like sigils from old grimoires. And that's another weird somewhat connection. There's also that general theme of the ghost in the machine, the idea that these computers are actually vessels for contact, perhaps. And maybe that's what AI is. Maybe it's not artificial intelligence, but you've opened up 
some kind of portal to an intelligence that can just speak through it. I mean, how would you really know the difference between something organically created and something that becomes a vessel for a foreign exotic consciousness? Mm -hmm. I like that. And some of the orb phenomena that shows up on cameras. Well, sometimes people see it, sometimes they don't, and it shows up. <laughs> so is this phenomena interacting with the machine somehow? I don't know, but it's intriguing. It is. And there are some researchers who have worked with plasmas, and they have said that in certain experiments, when they can generate a plasma, it almost seems as if it has an intelligence, that it is somewhat autonomous. I'm not aware of that. That's interesting. Yes. Eric Dollard said that to me. He showed a photo from a experiment, and it actually, this plasma looked like the shape of a little, like, stick figure man. And I asked him about it, and he's like, yeah. You know, he's, like, trying to be a serious scientist, but he's like, yeah, there were some qualities that made me think that there could be some emerging intelligence from it. And it's a curious thing. I mean, people see light beings. A lot of times these experiences do involve a brilliant white light. And maybe plasma is either their vehicle to get here or something they can operate through. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there's some weird uh, stuff out there, but I'm always just trying to find out a little bit more about all this. But you do have a section of the book titled UFOs, Myth, Ritual, and the Trickster, and you write that in the 60s and 70s, John Keel and Jacques Vallée pointed, pointed out that reports of UFO occupants are strikingly similar to entities described in myth and folklore. During those same decades, anthropologists made significant advancements in understanding myth and ritual. I'm curious what you think about that connection between ritual when it comes to indigenous cultures and their beliefs, these cultures that live closer within nature, they tend to find a, a place for the paranormal in their concept of reality. They seem to have a pretty complex understanding oftentimes of things that the Western mind can barely even accept. Yes, that's true. They have typically a simpler society, they don't have as much social stratification. They do have some, but they're more likely to have, in rituals, typically the status distinctions will be lowered, or basically there will be no status distinctions. They're very few. There might be a shaman who leads the ritual, but people will have what Victor Turner used, a communitas, sort of an equality. And you can see this in our culture occasionally. If you work in a large corporation, you're not going to just say hi and wave to the CEO. But even in smaller corporations, there's a status level. Well, at the company picnic, well, you might very well have more direct personal interaction with the top people. And that's sort of like a time of communitas. But during the normal workaday, you have very rigid boundaries between levels of management and workers and all that. So our culture has probably more stratification than some of the earlier cultures. And with the 
stratification, there's more rigidity in your roles and in what you do, and less, in some sense, freedom of what you can do within a structure like that. So when those distinctions, those roles sort of collapse and people are more at egalitarian situation, those phenomena may erupt and become more common. Those are some of my thoughts, but that comes out of some of Arnold Van Gennep's and Victor Turner's work. So if you're looking at the social situation, not so much just the personalities, but just what are the relations of various people. And it's often the marginal or the outsider that has the more interest and involvement with paranormal topics. I sometimes kind of joke, well, who in corporations consults fortune tellers? Well, secretaries, perhaps, and maybe CEOs. Right. But people in between, they probably wouldn't be quite so willing to admit that. And certainly... CEOs and some big corporations do use remote viewers in psychics. I've been involved with some of that, but they usually keep that very quiet. Hmm. Yeah, the stratification of our society obviously is pretty far and wide, but I do get curious and speculate a lot of times about that upper level. They seem to have a lot of different thoughts about this stuff. They seem to have just concepts that aren't necessarily advertised. There's the old trope of the king's court and the king would have some sort of occultist astronomer. He would have someone whose expertise is those areas, someone shaman-esque, and that's not necessarily thought about in today's upper levels, but I'm not so sure it's gone away. I don't think it has. And I think at very high levels, people are aware of these things. They have to be. And I suspect it's more common than even I know of. And there are certain well-to-do people who I know who do employ psychics and want to keep up on what's going on in the world. Hmm. So I was going to ask you about this. You have a paragraph in the book about Psy, where you say, in any given Psy experiment, it is difficult, if not impossible, to fully determine who causes any result. Experimenters, subjects, checkers, and others may all contribute some influence, even without conscious intent. ESP is not blocked by distance or time. Retroactive telekinesis suggests that persons in the future can influence the past. I'm pretty Interested in that retroactive psychokinesis. Psychokinesis is, it tends to be defined by moving objects with your mind. You can do that from the future influence in the past? Yeah, that work was pretty well known in the 70s and 80s. And there were a series of theoretical efforts that were generally lumped under the title of the observational theories. And much of the work, the pertinent work, was done with random number generators. And there were a number of other formulations of these ideas. There was the notion of psi-mediated experimenter effect. There was the divergence problem, the source problem. And so there were efforts to try to 
determine who was the source of these paranormal effects in the laboratory. And as the researchers studied it more and more, it became more and more nebulous. Now, this research is not very well known. All the work is primarily published in the professional journals and conference presentations. And it was largely headed by physicists. So it's not very well known. But yes, the problem of determining who is actually causing a particular effect is often rather nebulous. Now, in certain poltergeist situations, there seem to be some kind of disturbed individual or someone who's got some type of transition or other problem. But even then, you've got multiple people involved. So it's very difficult to pin down, okay, who is the cause? Now, certainly there are people who display psychic talents much more frequently than others. Nevertheless, they're not always successful psychically. And I suspect there's sometimes if, say, you were going for a reading, you wanted a psychic reading, it may depend on your own personality as well as the psychics and who is the major cause for the phenomena. You might think, okay, there's certainly the psychic has had a reputation, but is the psychic the cause or the source of the effect? That's not so clear. Maybe it involves somehow the relationship itself, whether it's unconscious or conscious, whatever. So that requires a fairly sophisticated understanding of the laboratory results and how the laboratory experiments are undertaken. And that's almost never discussed in the popular literature, unfortunately. And the people in the field now that I read seem to be unaware of that. In the 60s, in the 70s, and especially the 80s, there was a large amount of money pumped into the field comparatively. Today, and in the 80s, there were like six laboratories in the U.S. doing research, publishing in referee journals with people in offices and had paid staff. We don't see that now. Today in the U.S., there might be, I don't know, two or three people doing research full-time in parapsychology who are paid doing that research at a professional level. Now, there is the Skinwalker research, which is getting quite a bit of attention, which is not a really traditional laboratory-type situation that they've got. I think they're doing some very, very important and interesting work. I suspect maybe the research needs to go in that direction, but the laboratory research now is nothing like it was in the 80s. And the Skinwalker work is very interesting, but it's not being published in scientific journals by and large. There is a little bit, but not very much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's definitely worth considering that these experiences could be generated by some kind of resonance or field effect almost like the contagiousness of a cold. It's almost like sometimes if you just like the psi effects and the potency, if you investigate the paranormal, sometimes they say it follows you home as if it's contagious in a weird way. Yes, yes. There was a sitter group that I was involved with for a while. And when other people would visit that group, Sometimes they'd go home and have certain odd phenomena happen. And you also see that in the skinwalker work. So 
yeah, there is some kind of contagion there. I'm pretty convinced that that's a legitimate way of describing some of it. (laughs) So if you were pressed, would you say that your most likely conclusion is that the grays would be a product of the individual experiencer's unconscious mind? No. I suspect these entities have some kind of independent existence, or at least quasi-independent. I don't think these are simply generated by the experiencers. Fair, but their state of consciousness and, you know, elements of trauma or heightened emotion, these things are relevant to the experience, but maybe not the primary source. Yeah, and I'm not sure we can identify a primary source. It may be a constellation that is a relationship between a variety of factors and people that these phenomena do occur, but to try to identify a source might be going in the wrong direction. I think it's worth trying, but also looking at, okay, what else is happening there? What are the commonalities in these cases? And taking a broad brush, okay, if you look at strong phenomena, what else is going on there? Is there more deception? Are there certain types of personalities who are attracted? Do they have a history in other areas of the paranormal? So I think it's best to take sort of a broad approach. And if you just go in with, say, psychological inventories, you've already sort of set up what you want to find out. I think getting more involved like an anthropologist and getting to know the people and observe the phenomena and observe the people is probably a better way to go rather than some kind of pre-existing testing regime. Mm -hmm. I think those are useful, but I think it's more useful for the researchers to get involved more directly with the phenomena and try to observe the people and the phenomena themselves. And there's a lot of people in parapsychology who don't really want to do that. (laughs) I believe it. I believe it. Another interesting avenue of research, I don't know what to make of it, comes from this mention in the book where you say that at one point in the fall of 1989, you were asked to comment on an early version of The Controllers by Martin Cannon on government mind control that went on to become something of an underground classic in some ufology circles. Well, I have heard about the basic premise of that book, that UFO experiences are a result of government mind control operations. What was your take on his premise and have your thoughts on intelligence operations being a part of all this evolved over time? Well, I'm not sure I can comment on that effectively. In fact, I've kind of forgotten about the Martin Cannon incident, but certainly government have had a long-term interest in the paranormal. I don't know to what extent or what divisions of the government. You know, I know a few names that do pop up, but it's very difficult to know the extent. Now, it does seem to be that there's a lot of interest in the UFO topic now in the government. Well, historically, that has been very closely associated with the psychic aspect. I'm not sure that's come out very much in the testimony, but if you just look historically, 
the same people keep popping up. Andrzej Puharic, Edgar Mitchell, and these are the public people who have been involved with the topic. But I suspect that there are quite a number of others that have been holding a very, very low profile. Ingo Swan has certainly an interest in both, and he was one of the government, taught many of the government remote viewers, and he was very direct about his interest in the UFO topic and had described that at some length. So when you find someone as successful as Ingo Swan involved, I'm sure that there were plenty of people in the intelligence community would would be virtually certain to develop that interest, as well as many people in foreign countries. Right. I agree with you there. It does seem like the context of the David Grush stuff and these hearings that they're having is mostly a nuts and bolts alien craft military industrial complex kind of context. Well, maybe not. Certainly, you've got people like Jack Sarfati, who's been involved with remote viewing and UFOs and the like. There's alternative physics. So I suspect that there are people in the government who are much more sophisticated in their thinking. I don't know how much power they have. If they are thinking strictly nuts and bolts, I think they've got to be more sophisticated than that. As far as I know, there's no really good theory connecting remote viewing with UFOs, but there needs to be. <laughs> and there's obviously people who are very involved with both topics. Now, I don't know how much theoretical advance that they've made, but they certainly have to realize that those things are connected. Oh, yeah, I certainly think they are connected. And I hope that there are people behind the curtain that make those connections. I'm just saying the public-facing hearings, it's military pilots, it's whistleblowers who worked in military groups that were studying the phenomenon. It's all steeped in uh, classified files. And the speculation in general is that this is somehow going to be spun or used for inflating military budgets when it's all said and done. But that's like surface level operations that they have going on. I hope there's something deeper behind the curtain. It seems like there would be. Hal Putoff, of course, is a, is a big name in both energy research and studying UFOs and this sort of thing. Right. And there's got to be more. <laughs> Probably a lot of names we don't even know. Well, and if these phenomena do occur, they may be very disruptive. And there may be some blowback. If you look at the skinwalker and the hitchhiker effect, there are side effects. Have they been able to control those? Probably not. Mm -hmm. There may be effects on their families. In fact, certainly that's part of the skinwalker phenomenon. So there may be unanticipated consequences. And those consequences may be rather severe. Hmm. I didn't know about effects on people's families. I don't think I oh, yeah. know of examples oh, no, of that. You, you need to read the skinwalkers at the Pentagon and go into it in considerable detail on that. Hmm. Yeah, I've heard people say they went home from Skinwalker Ranch and their doors would slam shut. Their 
fans would come on and off? No, 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 no. There, there's diseases. Hmm. That people get very, very sick. It's a very, very important phenomena. And it really fits very nicely with some of my own theoretical work. Hmm. If you look at anything, even I think George Knapp has covered some of that in some of his postings. There are a number of autoimmune disorders that occur. Interesting. How does that fit with your research? Like, what do you think that it might be a clue to? Well, that's, I'm not willing to go public on that at this point. I've noted it in one or two of my lectures. This is a very important phenomenon. Very interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, yeah. This is, you really need to look at the book Skinwalkers at the Pentagon. Yeah, I'll have to dust it off. It's been a while. Obviously, that's another classic. Yeah, I think it's a very important book. Yeah, I sometimes hear about radiation, that sort of poisoning, encountering crafts no, 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 or where they no, were. No, 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 no. This is a radiation model probably is not appropriate. Okay, some other sickness vector then. Um, yeah, we'll leave it at that. But remote viewing and psi effects, coming back to some of that, just the notion that they aren't blocked by distance, that's been proven with remote viewing many times. I mean, just the nature of it, remote viewing, if it was blocked by distance, then <laughs> you would just be using your eyes. But time is such a, a wacky thing. And sometimes I think that if ESP and psychokinesis aren't limited by time, how are things not just absolute chaos from even just a small percentage of people at all periods of time dabbling in these sorts of effects? You know, maybe there's a way of answering that question. I don't see that that would be, you have to look at regularities, what things seem to happen in over you know, hundreds of years. And what are the patterns? You need to look for patterns, not trying to explain, ex understand why. You have to understand what first. Right. So the selection of topics and questions is rather important. And a why question is usually not productive. <laughs> I'm full of why questions. I don't know why I'm so stuck on the why, but... No, you, you see, if you're thinking in that direction, you can't make progress because you're dealing with what you know. You need to find out what else you don't know yet. Right on, right on. Well, I, you know I was going to ask you about this, but Terrence McKenna suggested that the universe runs on narrative, and that always struck me as kind of interesting when thinking about things like synchronicity and how people's lives tend to unfold into a good story or stories that hit certain notes. This might relate to Joseph Campbell's The Hero's Journey, just these beats that seem to come up in a person's life. And this idea that the universe would run on narrative, that it would push people towards self-organizing our lives in almost narrative plot points. Do you think there's something to that statement that the universe runs on narrative? Yes. In fact, your description here it made me think a little bit more on that topic. Yeah, I do think there is something there. I'm not really sure how to formulate it. 
but it is a topic that I do have some interest in. And your discussion of it, in fact, has prodded me to think a little bit differently about it. So that's a very deep area. Narrative would probably be an area studied by literary criticism. And that's an area that I have developed some interest in. So I'm not sure how to express that and what that means. There are other people who have said similar things, but right now I have not figured out in my mind exactly what that means. <laughs> so, you know, I've got some ideas about it, but I think it's an important issue. And if you write anything more about that, I'll be interested in hearing a variety. I'm interested in a variety of different perspectives on that. So I think it's a valuable area to pursue. I'm kind of confused by it, but that's probably a good thing. It's curious. It's curious. But people who pay attention to synchronicity obviously start to notice more of them. You mentioned the travel and synchronicity thing. Maybe that is a catalyst because it's forming a narrative actively as opposed to someone sitting on their couch, not really engaging with much action in the world. Obviously, travel is a big action. So maybe the universe puts a spotlight on it in a weird way. And also, it's typically non-routine in travel. It's not a usual thing that, you know, like driving to work or something. It's something different, and you're experiencing the world differently than you have before. And your routine is not the same. So time is different. So those types of things that are a bit disruptive or changing one's life and one's status, because when you're traveling, you're not answering to your boss necessarily. You can't follow the same schedules you do. So there's a little more openness. You might have a little bit more freedom to go here or there. And those types of situations, I think, are sort of psi-conducive or synchronistically conducive. Mm -hmm. You know, I never really gave much thought to routine and high strangeness experiences. Just the notion of asking a wide range of experiencers if right before this happened, they were taking a road less traveled or going to work as they would five days a week for the last three years. Where in their routine did this occur? Were they outside of the norm? That's probably pretty interesting, just like their state of mind. Did they experience a recent trauma? Are they physically in a place that they wouldn't otherwise be? Did they stay up later in the night than they might have otherwise before this occurred? Those sorts of things probably are another area of investigation worth going down. Yeah, I think so. And have you read The Synchronicity, Science, Myth, and the Trickster? No. I recommend it. It's an easy read. Who wrote that? Okay, Combs, the first author, I think it's Combs, C-O-M-B-S, and Holland. And it came out in maybe late 70s. I'm sure I have it in my list of references. It's there. Yes, I've heard book. you mention it before. Definitely, it's on the list, on a very long list. And I guess I would ask you, who do you consider some of the brightest minds applying their thought to paranormal psi topics or the UFO field? 
at a high level. If listeners wanted to make sure they're tuned in to the best sources and paying attention, who is operating at a high level these days looking at high strangeness in general? I'm not endorsing their work, but I am favorably impressed with the stuff that's with the Skinwalker work. It's very well funded. I suspect some of it will not hold up. I'm not sure where it will lead, but I think something like they're doing is important. I don't know of any ongoing laboratory work that I could point to because there are a few people who kind of do a little bit of that work, but I'm not seeing a community forming around laboratory-based research in the paranormal. It's basically not there. There are departments over in England, but I'm not seeing anything that really is very impressive as far as overall results. Yikes. <laughs> uh, yeah. Partly it's because of the funding, but I just don't see it. And I do see a decline in quality. Now, some of the practical applications, people might do something, but you know, there's a lot more remote viewers out there now. They have their own organization. There are people who are teaching remote viewing, but typically they're not involved in, you know, long-term serious lab work, which might be appropriate to do a practical application. So maybe that's something that is more suitable for the nature of the phenomenon. I think there are very serious limitations to laboratory work simply because of the nature of the phenomena. Also, I will point out that for thousands of years, these phenomena were looked upon as somewhat dangerous. And that's almost never addressed why that is. I could go on at some length. <laughs> and I think that They've always been surrounded by taboos and religious restrictions and the like. Why is that? That question almost never is asked in religion or in science. Why is it marginal? How did that come about? Right. There's a lot of strict rules in religions that keep the boundaries well-defined or try to, maybe they're trying to keep that trickster energy from manifesting, don't give it any fuel. Yes. Hmm. Interesting. In a culture today with less religious people than ever in America, I would think we would see it in full swing. And we, as we talked about, in some ways we are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. <laughs> well, I guess we'll leave it at that. But man, in 13 years, I've never recorded an interview between midnight and 2 a.m. So that's a new milestone. Certainly has helped with the vibe. <laughs> uh, but outside of recommending your book, is there anything more to tell people? Any future work you might put out or links to give? Not offhand. I, I'm very busy reading a lot of material. I've got a whole lot more I'd like to write on. But 
to explain it, for instance, some of my work about Derrida, it's rather difficult to convey the issues. It's very abstract, but I think it will eventually be productive. Yeah, I hope so. I hope to see that in the future. And I hope to see you give some attention to that intersection of the strict rules associated with religions and the phenomenon. I think that's a real light bulb moment, really late in the game in this interview, but a light bulb moment for me in the final moments that I'm definitely going to be thinking about for a while. Yeah, there's not much on that. <laughs> and it's very, at some point, we might have another discussion on that. But it's very interesting to watch. There are a number of people who have a religious background or religious training in study of religion who really pretty clearly avoid that topic completely. And these are somewhat rather prominent people in, in these areas. They don't talk about that. Yeah. Well, it's a provocative place to end things for sure. And it was a real pleasure to spend some time with you. Your book has left a huge impression on me. And it was a real honor to check this box on my quest to catch all the good guests that have made an impact on me over the years. So thanks for making my wildest dream come true and take care out there. Well, thank you. You've been giving me some very provocative ideas to think about. <laughs> so appreciate it. I try. All right. Have a good night. Okay. You too. All righty. Bye-bye. All right. Well, there it is. A legend in his field, master of his domain. I mentioned this in the interview, but in 12 years, I've never had anybody request that we record from midnight to 2 a.m. And it wasn't exactly an easy thing to accommodate with my life right now, but I wanted this one. So I just thought, all right, I see you, trickster guy. Touche. <laughs> so that's one thing. But I wish I could have gotten him a bit more outside of his lane, a bit more into speculative territory. I tried. And it seemed like he found some of those avenues interesting, but he's pretty careful with his words, and it didn't seem like he wanted to talk about ideas he hasn't had sufficient time to consider thoroughly. I respect that. It's probably pretty smart, <laughs> but it does kind of throw a wrench in what I do. And when I have a guest who is as well known as he is, who's done as many interviews as he has, I try to do something different. And the guests usually don't know me. I'm just another face in the podcasting crowd. So maybe it comes across as I don't really know the basics when really I'm just trying to say, hey, we know A, B, and C. Those bits are well established. But what about how this all applies to X, Y, and Z? But either way, it was a milestone for me, like I said. I do think we got into interesting territory a few times what he said about disease and the paranormal, as well as what he said about the strict rules of religion being a way to keep the chaos at bay and the boundaries and binaries clearly defined because there is that devil, mischief, taboo, subverting connection. And if sexual taboo violation makes magic more potent, I think that's reason enough at the time for some pious authorities to make a bunch of rules against it, 
But maybe there was this idea that it fueled the beast in general, the trickster, the devil, etc., etc. We all know about fear of the unknown, and the trickster seems to love presenting itself as the unknown, or the unexpected, or the chaotic. It's interesting that that could have been part of the logic in such restrictive rules around religion, but as George said, there's something there, just not many people exploring it. I have noticed that a lot of our guests who study things in this realm actually tend to come back to religion or have a religious foundation of sorts. Michael Joseph, Nick Hinton, even Joshua Cutchin. Chris Knowles will say, don't fuck with this stuff, don't pursue it. And Gordon will say that, Magic can wreck your life. So add it all up, you know? But I thought that religious angle was going somewhere. It just came so late in the game. But I did have a good time. His book is a classic. I mean, how many previous guests have cited it as a favorite? Many. And I included it in the paranormal top 10 book list with Gordon, I'm pretty sure. We didn't talk about this, but I always liked that point that Bugs Bunny is probably the most well-known and clearest trickster archetype in Western media. And it's also funny that liberals cite Bugs Bunny dressing as a woman to taunt Elmer Fudd in the cartoons as this example that nobody seemed to have a problem with drag back then. <laughs> and it might not exactly be the same thing, but just an observation of how it's popping up in the cultural discourse these days. So overall, maybe not how I thought it would go in my planning, but I'm still glad we did it. If you liked the first hour, you know the second hour goes deeper. We added things to the stack like Young's thoughts on UFOs and the trickster, disclosure and deception, psychedelics and the trickster, Skinwalker Ranch research, and several other threads. You know how to get it if you want it. Thanks for listening. Let's go to the calendar at HiresideMeetups.com, where anyone can make an event and find new people to add to your local network. Here's what we got on deck. Today, September 30th, is both the Auckland, New Zealand meetup and the Columbia, Missouri meetup. And then October 1st, the PlayStation Virtual meetup. October 12th, the monthly Flame International Restaurant meetup in L.A., October 14th, Edgewater, Colorado, also the 14th, Rappingers Falls, New York, and also the 14th, an event in Lansing, Michigan, and also the 14th, one in Huntington, Indiana. And let's leave it there because there will be more shows coming out where we can throw the other ones out there to you. But good stuff. Join the party if there is one near you, or you can always make your own. And that's it. Five shows before the month's end, like I said. And I think my little family here is through the most difficult parts of what we had to go through, and everyone is going to carry on unscathed. So I appreciate all the thoughts, prayers, and well wishes. Natural birth really is a rite of passage for women, and I've talked to my wife about the nuances of the most recent home birth experience, first the first one, 
Yes, it got scary there for a minute, but she is happy she did it, and it's something that no one can ever take away. And I think these experiences are baked into nature, and we shouldn't use these so-called conveniences of industrial society to numb them or take them away. Unless you have to. But it's not my business how you handle your shit. That said, thanks for sticking around this long. Thanks to George, and take care of you and yours. I'm getting out of here. Your move, trickster embodiments, taboo disruptors, and uniters of opposites. Your fucking move. When you see weird lights outside of your door Something sits on your chest when you sleep It might be a pattern you've been through before you might have those screen memories darling wait till we get some proof still we'll make them see and baby i tried the camera died i'm not crazy Real as-